You're listening to another episode of Heatwave Radio's Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. Uh, and as I am recording this, it is Barbenheimer weekend, the weekend during which both Barbie and Oppenheimer came out. And wouldn't you know it, we're going to talk about both of those movies. We're going to do this in two parts, uh, by which I mean two episodes. The first of those episodes is going to be talking about Oppenheimer. We have a lot to say, so we're going to start by talking about the sort of event that was Barbenheimer weekend first, and then we're going to talk about Oppenheimer, which goes on for a while. This is a pretty long movie, uh, and so we talk about it for a while. We had um, pretty, I don't want to say fully opposite thoughts, but this is actually a pretty good discussion. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, pretty happy with it. Um, I will say, for the most part, this is a spoiler-heavy episode. Uh, spoilers for history most of this stuff happened so you know uh keep that in mind if you would prefer if you're if you're unfamiliar with the story and you want to experience it firsthand or experience it through the movie i guess uh go watch the movie and then come back but if uh but otherwise we're going to talk full details about the movie full spoilers and um I hope you enjoy our episode. Here's a little bit of Ludwig Göransson's score for Oppenheimer. listening to another episode of classic movies live and this weekend cinema is back baby pierre were you excited for barbenheimer weekend oh come on <laughs> oh, i was yeah <laughs> i how many I get... oh, so no oh, go sorry. ahead uh yeah though no. i was uh i was excited i think i liked all the hype that we got to see it just feels like a very culturally fun moment if that makes sense how many people in your theater were dressed up to go to the movies? Like, in, like even if you were just in the lobby, like how many people did you see in like stark pink or in me, Barbenheimer t-shirts? For me, not that many. I think someone that was working there was in Barbenheimer. But apparently there were like, because when I left the theater, my friend who didn't, my friend didn't know Barbenheimer was a thing. So he was like, I don't know why there was like a bunch of people dressed in pink in the theater to watch Oppenheimer. <laughs> and then we explained it to him and he was uh, very confused, but <laughs> I guess it explained that for him because yeah, wearing, wearing like uh, very flamboyant movies or clothing to not that there's anything wrong with it, but just an awe, it can be a clash. It can clash with the tone that is uh, Oppenheimer. Um, I but think it, like, yeah, it works well for Barbie. I think like the last time I saw anyone dress up for the movies was like uh, was was a Spider Man movie because every Spider Man movie oh, there's yeah. like someone in a Spider Man costume, but the that last time I saw this many people or anywhere close to this many people dressed up to go to the movie was like Star Wars Episode Three in two thousand six or wow. something. Wow, 
it was been a while. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's also like to dress up for Barbie, it's like relatively like you don't have to spend a ton of money to buy like a Spider-Man costume because I don't know the pricey. You can just buy like bright clothing. So I think it was like it was smart to make it very available for people to participate in the Barbie spirit without buying Barbie TM clothing to support the movie. Although I did see people in like custom made Barbenheimer t-shirts. I mean, I, Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, well, yeah. they were selling, there must've been like an Etsy thing where there's a bunch yeah. of those sold online. Um, yeah, those are cool. Actually. I like those shirts. I saw a couple people wearing those. Um, and I would say that's probably the culmination of one of the greatest marketing campaigns of all time. If I'm going to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the current climate, I was, I was reading a bit about how, I mean, it's, it's pretty, obvious now but like with with social media and tiktok and stuff it's very important for marketing to feel uh like extremely organic and Mm -hmm. made by the people if that makes sense and barbenheimer felt very from what i can tell it's a completely it's a phenomena that was completely made by fans even though we did see the studios embrace it a bit uh you know with them buying tickets to both movies the stars of the movies buying tickets to both and uh it was a lot it was a lot of discourse from you know in news articles and stuff but that was really cool and i think that's partly what a lot of these a lot of these movies this summer were missing is that organic kind of uh advertising campaign like i i think with a lot of the movies that bombed this year they were extremely forced marketing campaigns like the flash which you only <laughs> you heard from many hollywood people was one of the best move superhero movies of all time and I potentially, I think that actually hurt the movie a lot because uh, it turned out to not be anywhere close to the best superhero movie of all time. So, and, and like, that was that was just extremely people, inorganic advertising. Yeah, and a lot of the people that were going to the Flash, even if they even if they weren't necessarily going to the Flash, like because they believed James Gunn when he said this is the best superhero movie ever, even if they weren't going for that reason. Like the studios trying to hype up the Flash that much and saving it from being canned so many times put a lot of expectations on it that, like, you know, me and my friends went to the Flash, prop not expecting it to actually be nearly as good as people were saying or as like Mm -hmm. Hollywood people were saying, but like, it's still when it was as bad as it was, you come out of it even more disappointed for having any expectations built up to that degree. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I feel like the same thing happened with Indiana Jones, where there was a big push of like, this is like the last movie of the franchise. Everyone should go. Um, and just no one was feeling it at all. So Yeah, I don't remember if I said it on here, but I remember reading something from Steven Spielberg. It was just like a poll quote. And he was like, yeah, I didn't think anyone could make these movies other than me, but James Mangold, he sure did it. And like... (laughs) It didn't sound like... I Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, it's just... it's So so I went into it, like, yeah. It's just so easy to, like, suss out. I I feel like there's so much um, transparency behind marketing and, like, movies now. Like that it's so easy to see when someone's kind of being fake about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like, with with uh, Indiana Jones, 
the marketing campaign I, I this is weird but like i thought the trailers were absolutely terrible the the remix of the indiana jones theme song and that was what's, bad what's, what's the song it's like jungle it's i know it's a really famous song i, I feel bad for not knowing it what's it called but like, like i i don't know i just oh, know it as the indiana it's jones like by the theme. rolling stones and and then they mix it oh. in yeah like, i can't remember they were like I hate like it, it's like Indiana Jones has literally one of the most iconic theme songs in the world, and to remix it into like an '80s pop rock song is like, well, maybe not pop rock. I think it's pretty rock, uh, but that was like abhorrent to me. I thought it sounded. I think both songs are great individually, but together it was bad, and it just did not turn out very well. I think it's like, but like if you look at the trailers for Oppenheimer. Like Oppenheimer is just I I think Nolan has input on advertising in his trailers and you can tell because all his trailers are always very very well done mm-hmm. and they're kind of cinematic in their own right if that makes sense. Yeah. Um and that's really yeah, how builds his brand. I just wanted to say about the Indiana Jones trailer like I think this I think the song you're thinking of is Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, um, yeah, there you go. And also the version of the Indiana Jones theme they used was so bad. Like it was a slow, mm-hmm. it was a very slow, like one last time version of the Indiana Jones theme that like, I hate that all the time. And especially in trailers, it comes across as like the grim, dark version. Like it comes across the same way as, you know, when a trailer will put in like a grim version of a pop song like the Napoleon mm. trailer is doing that right now. Um, oh, but like yeah, you'll have yeah. a grim version <laughs> of some pop song. And it's like, that's never, at best, it's very funny. But the trailers never lean into it being really funny. They just, it, they always oh. mean it seriously. And it's never right. Like, it's never good. Well, it's, it's actually worked. Do you remember the first Suicide Squad trailer where they turned uh, I, I think the song's called I Started a Joke or something? And I'm remember. pretty sure. Oh, it, it was a very upbeat. It was a very upbeat song that they that they do a cover of, and it's like very melancholic. And at the time, they were advertising Suicide Squad as a very dark, um, edgy movie, and that trailer was actually really well done. And I think that start. I think that was because Marvel did a similar trailer before that. Uh, but yeah, and then um, obviously they turned it around with Bohemian Rhapsody, which which was like. <laughs> The opposite of a slow song so like i think it can work i just i just think in that trailer specifically like it just it didn't mesh very well and it felt like the studios were trying to make this i i this old iconic series sound more hip even though it's a song from the 80s which is like it's like not or the 70s maybe so it's like it's not still not that hip it's like i guess they were advertising it towards 50 year olds i think that was their goal it's um, it's bringing a series from it's it's bringing a series where everything is supposed to be happening in the early fifties into a new decade, yeah, the sixties. Yeah. So, which I guess is a whole thing. Is it really the six? Was it the sixties in that movie? It took place oh yeah, because it was sixty seven. I think it was sixty nine because the moon landing oh, happens 69, at the very beginning, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And yeah. 
but yeah, no, Oppenheimer and Barbie were very well marketed. And I think it just goes to show, like, I, there was a lot of discourse about, is, is this kind of like the worst summer in the history of movies? Like, are, are theaters kind of dying off again? And we keep seeing that it's not necessarily true. It's just theaters or these uh, franchises really need to start thinking more originally and building a brand that's not based on nostalgia again. Cause I think that's kind of dying out. And I think like, I mean, I talk almost every episode about franchise hell and like what's really notable about both of these movies is there's a lot of reasons to come like Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig aren't unknowns. These are like big movies with a lot of pull behind them in terms of actors, directors, Uh, Barbie is an IP that everyone knows. Like, there's a lot of things pulling people into these movies, but also, like, these aren't franchises. They're both Mm. very original, and, like, this summer of flops has been DC movie, Indiana Jones movie, um, Marvel movie, kind of. Marvel movie. Like, it's been a bunch of franchises that didn't work out because people don't, at, at least my interpretation of that, is that people will go to see these franchise movies because they're excited about them a little bit, but like the general public isn't interested in keeping track of a bunch of franchises. So when something comes out like these that are self-contained, complete experiences that are like offering something new and interesting, people are excited about it. Especially Mm. when like what also really worked in this movie's favor is, you know, um people people who are already film buffs are big are already probably big fans of Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig and all the actors involved in this like the people who already were going to be excited about movies were very excited about these ones and these happen to be ones that bring in like people who maybe only go to a couple of movies a year mm-hmm. yeah and i think both both of them are very good directors in terms of making sure that they can work with the studio and also create their own supportive their own have their own creative vision if that makes sense Mm -hmm. like nolan is slowly kind of doing i feel like he's doing he's becoming more nolan which is like he's kind of doing whatever he wants but he's very smart because i've always read this about nolan he always returns his movies under budget on under schedule and he's very communicative with the studios and his movies always make money so what i thought was wild about this movie uh the one the first one we're going to talk about today oppenheimer um what i thought was wild about this is it costs it cost less to make than every marvel series currently airing and like the last five marvel movies which those movies are arbitrarily expensive at a certain point but still like this movie looks really good and looks really expensive and it's shockingly cheap all things considered yeah it's not it's, cheap what, but it's mil? way yeah about 100 mil yeah no that's really good because i i watched uh that jay the jennifer lawrence comedy that costs 50 million to make and it's like half the time it's not even a period piece so you don't have to pay for like these old sets i think it's just they paid j-law like 25 million and let her do whatever and and then just kind of shot the rest of the budget into like these things but it's like a lot of movies like these budgets are kind of getting insane 
and mm -hmm. like what we like we, what we just saw with nolan though like he made a three hour period piece with like i want to say like 20 well-known actors <laughs> there's a lot of well-known actors in that movie all for about 100 mil that's really really good and not to mention that like i don't know um i guess we'll find out for sure probably closer to the oscars when like visual effects campaigns start so I don't know how innovative the visual effects in this movie necessarily are, but if but like they're very involved. This is a very mm -hmm. VFX heavy movie, and it's like not via it, it's not VFX that like anyone can just throw together. This is no. they had to simulate a bomb using an atomic bomb using practical effects. Yeah, and they did it, and it looks cool. It was it's quite the uh, experiment experimental mm -hmm. i like i wouldn't say the visual effects are anything like awe inspiring or anything but he definitely had his own take on visual effects in the movie mm -hmm. if that makes sense they weren't these weren't it's gonna sound really weird but these aren't these aren't the typical vfx these are these are special these are unique like the way he shot them so yeah so uh we'll talk about this a lot more after we talk about barbie um in in a while several several uh a long time from now yeah but um what first question before we get into the movie what lessons do you think hollywood should take from barbenheimer and what lessons do you think hollywood will take from barbenheimer i'll probably ask you this again after barbie so like don't don't no need to get too involved yeah, with your answer. don't worry <laughs> uh i'd say number one invest more in nolan because <laughs> that's <laughs> That's just obvious at this point. I, be, I bet Warner Brothers is kicking themselves about that still. Warner Brothers, apparently, this is, I think this is a rumor. Like, I don't know how substantiated it is. Apparently, some top brass from Warner Brothers met with Nolan and just like gave him several million dollars and were like, no, 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 this is just a gift. But we would <laughs> like you to come back. Yeah, I I mean I can't literally I can't blame them. Like Nolan's probably the hottest director by far in Hollywood right now. I you could say James Cameron, but I don't even know. Like, could James Cameron direct a three-hour biopic and make this much money? And I, I think he could, but it's all it'd be risky. Whereas Nolan now we know he can do it. So it's and like also it feels like James Cameron will be free to do anything that's not Avatar in about twenty thirty nine. Yeah, so it's not going to matter anyways. So Nolan's your, your second best bet at literally, like, I'm pretty sure they just toss money at Nolan and they can literally not be stressed about what's going to happen. And that's probably the best thing a studio can ask for from a director. So uh, he's he's got in the bag. I think lesson number two is... I actually don't know what lesson number two is. Maybe, well, I, I definitely know Greta Gerwig is going to get a ton more options to do what she wants in the future too because now she's not only a critical darling but she's a block blockbuster uh phenomenon and she's also a woman and i think that's like a very big you know get for uh the for the studios because unfortunately there's not too many blockbuster female blockbuster directors and i think it's pretty exciting that Greta Gerwig's definitely going to be opening that door. And I think we're going to see a lot more blockbusters directed by females in the future, potentially. And right now I'm pretty sure there's exactly one female director who can say that she was not only that she was, that she has uh, released directed the highest grossing movie of the year in any given year. 
Yeah, that's that's crazy. Like the only way that Barbie becomes not the highest grossing movie of this year is if like is if people like run down theater doors to go see the new Martin Scorsese movie, which isn't going to happen. Like (laughs) this movie is Barbie is almost certainly going to remain the top grossing movie of this year. Yeah. Well, maybe not. I don't know how much Mario made. It might, it might be close with Mario. Oh, wait, that's right. Mario, I think currently is at like 1.3 bill, I think. And Barbie beat its opening, but I guess Barbie has to have legs now. Yeah, I think it will have legs, but... It's never been a problem it, for the dolls. They're very tall. They're exactly... <laughs> they got a lot of room. Uh, we'll see, though. It's I think animated movies usually have better legs overall, so... But I'll, I'd say... I, I'd almost say Barbie could play like an animated movie because it seems so uh, family-friendly friendly and for all all ages, so... Yeah, it sort we'll it definitely depends on word of mouth because I can see mm. word of mouth like co- ending up with it getting a reputation as being not as family friendly. Definitely not as family friendly as something like Mario. Mario, yeah. But like, it's it definitely. I I think it's PG thirteen and like kids can see Barbie. Like, there's nothing in there that's gonna be offensive for children or something. Hopefully. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. Which, by the way, anyone listening, I didn't watch Barbie because I bought tickets to the wrong theater. So I was planning to do Barbenheimer, but we we missed that instead. And I saw the Jennifer Lawrence movie. But the thing is, we're recording both of these episodes on one day. So like, we're recording this, then you're going to go see Barbie, and then we're going to come back and record the rest. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um. um yeah, so, yeah, the one thing, the the last thing I wanted to say is like, um, in, in terms of lessons that Hollywood can take from Barbenheimer, like one thing that I saw that was definitely, it definitely started as a meme and it's not going to advance past the meme stage, but I have already seen studios like interact with it, which Paramount Pictures, if you're listening to this, stop, just stop right now. You, you're being had. Uh, the day that, the the day that Oppenheimer and Barbie came out, like someone on Twitter pointed out that uh, coming up in September or October, I think it's October, Saw and Paw Patrol are coming out on the same day. So they're like, Saw Patrol is on October 10th. Which one are you going to? And like, it's a funny meme. But today I saw Paramount Pictures and I think Lionsgate Lionsgate, I think, is doing Saw, and Paramount Pictures is doing Paw Patrol. I saw both of them tweet about Saw Patrol, and I'm like, you have to stop. Yeah, no one is serious hot. about that. Yeah. No one is going to go... There's going to be, like, there's there's going to be a few hundred people that are so committed to the bit that they will go and see Saw and Paw Patrol, but that's it. Like, this is not going to be a global phenomenon the way that Barbenheimer ended up being. Yeah, it's well, I mean, yeah, it's it's not as cool. It's the second it's like it's not an original idea anymore. You can't do it twice. Yeah, I mean, when you said it has to be organic, like it has to be. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much uh, the Barbie Oppenheimer double feature was promoted by 
anyone related to the studio? The answer is certainly not zero, but like, I didn't see Warner Brothers say very much about Oppenheimer because they're pissed off at Christopher Nolan. And I didn't see Universal say very much about uh, Barbie because they didn't have to. They, it wasn't their movie. So like yeah. they weren't, these weren't being promoted together, at least not publicly. It just kind of happened. So whether, yeah. I don't know. So like, no matter how much of the marketing actually was organic, it all looked organic. And yeah. like anyone trying to do Saw Patrol or like two Christmas movies together, it's yeah. not going to happen unless it's organic. Yeah. Well, I think that- we're going to have a, we're going to have a Morbius re-release situation again. That that was really smart by the, the studios not to mention each other the Barbenheimer thing at all because like once it's like it's like once it's kind of like Facebook it was like it was like once the uh, once the parents started using it then all everyone else started moving to different things right it's yeah. like if the studios are kind of like like if they embrace it then it's too much that's why like I thought the Mission Impossible thing with Tom Cruise was a little that because it felt like he was like wait there's i'm part of barbenheimer too guys like count me in on this like watch mission impossible and barbenheimer and it just like i don't know <laughs> like it was like tom tom no one was comparing those two no one was talking about mission impossible in the same sentence as barbenheimer so <laughs> like i i'm sorry man it's just unfortunate if, if he should have maybe he should have tried to put mission impossible the same day as oppenheimer and barbie and then he made a voter might have gone in on it. I mean, you you did point out that it was kind of counter-programming to both of these. But another thing that's like very unique about this is Barbie is very easy and obvious counter-programming to Oppenheimer. And mm-hmm. Oppenheimer is very easy and obvious counter-programming to Barbie. Like, you can yeah, try like and make a counter-program... Exactly. Like, there's no third thing is going to actually be that successful alongside them. Yeah. Maybe, like, but I can't, not to the same degree. I can't imagine watching at least Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible back to back because they're both really long movies. Yeah, that <laughs> would be would too much. Yeah. And it would be like, it's it's too much of like, they're not that similar, but they're too similar. Yeah, exactly. That They've got worked. the same target audience, I guess. Kinda, and they're they're too intense. Because I I think Nolan's technically playing to a blockbuster audience just because of his name, and mm-hmm. the the general knowledge the audience has of him and his cast, right? So, yeah, Oppenheimer is gonna play I play a lot more like a blockbuster than um, a lot of people might assume block or box office wise, including the legs. I think it might have a pretty steep drop going into next week, whereas Barbie's definitely going to have better, much better legs overall, just because Barbie's more of a kid's movie. Oh, sorry, I yeah. shouldn't say kid's movie, but a family experience, whereas Oppenheimer, definitely, I, like, I'm not going to rewatch Oppenheimer. Not to say it's a bad movie, but it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot of a movie. I, I would, I, I do have to say though, Oppenheimer has IMAX exclusivity for a few weeks. I don't know how, how long for sure, mm-hmm. but it has IMAX exclusivity and I saw a picture of, I don't know where it was. I think it was in Los Angeles somewhere. Anyway, it's playing at the biggest IMAX screen in the US. And the, the next tickets that you can get, like the soonest you can get tickets for it is two weeks from now. Wow. Like it's sold out for two that's, weeks. That's actually crazy, yeah. 
So like I think Oppenheimer might have legs. And it also has a it also has a um it's only gonna be in theaters for a hundred days. Like it's mm. it has a guarantee of no streaming before, before minimum a hundred days. Yeah. No, you're right. That I think that could work because uh that played really well for Avatar where it had insane legs because it just had all the IMAX screens. Mm-hmm. And there were some people that ended up watching it later because they couldn't see it in IMAX. So that's actually a really good point. It could it could play a lot better long run too. And IMAX makes a ton more money per ticket. I want to say it's like 40% more or something per ticket. So it feels like it's close to ha- close to twice as much, but yeah, it's not maybe. fully twice as much. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. Do we do we want to talk we haven't talked about the movie yet. In yeah, like 20 uh, minutes. Tell, so. tell tell us about Christopher Nolan. We've talked about him a bunch on this show. Yeah, well, Christopher Nolan wanna like we said, probably one of the most well-known, successful directors of our generation. He, he's, I want to say direct, he was definitely my favorite director for a long time. Um, I'd say lately he's become a lot more Nolan-y, which I think is just inevitable for any big director. Uh, you know, like I think I felt the same thing with Wes Anderson. His latest movie was way too Wes Anderson for me. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Tarantino where he's kind of like, I don't, I can do whatever I want and the studios will give me money. So I thought his last movie was way too Tarantino. And I feel like Nolan's kind of in that period where he's, he feels the same way. And I don't blame him because, you know, he's making money either way, but I'd say like Dunkirk and Tenet um, are both movies that were surprisingly very artsy and risky for, uh such a big block such a big mainstream director if that makes sense I mean, a lot definitely more dunkirk than tenet mm-hmm. i think tenet was just bad maybe <laughs> i was uh, i was thinking artsy i think it just might i didn't like it so um that i think my way of saying it nolan is nolan is like one of the few directors who's such a big name that it feels like he can kind of trick mainstream audiences into watching like art cinema not that not that nolan is like as artsy as it gets but he's a lot more avant-garde than like the mcu is and people know that name so well that like they'll show up for a nolan movie because it's a nolan movie not necessarily like not it doesn't have to be a nolan movie about something like extremely big that everyone is already interested in or knows something about if it's nolan people will show up yeah exactly he's well to be fair it's just because he's developed such he's a very smart director not in terms of the art he makes but also how he is as a businessman Mm -hmm. you know he I, i think he came on the scene as a very unique director but then he took like like memento and actually i've never seen a the other movie he made it was called insomnia yeah insomnia with like al pacino i think it was mm-hmm. uh, i never saw that one but he went from memento to like batman begins and that was at a time when the batman ip was just, like, it was trash like no one wanted to touch it i think yeah and he took it and he uh i i think he was very smart because he basically allowed himself to turn the bat well he, he saved the batman franchise and he's probably he probably increased the amount of revenue made from that brand as a whole by like the billions just from his movies. 
but he was also able to build his own brand because the Dark Knight trilogy is very much in the style of Christopher Nolan. You know, like if you watch a dark the Dark Knight and then you watch Inception, you can see a lot of similarities in terms of his directing style and his dialogue style and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he made a blockbuster movie and then he just totally made a completely artsy movie that would have turned off his audience. Like he made blockbusters for a while and now he's in the phase in his career where he's, he's done the work. He put in the work in those blockbusters and he can kind of do what he wants now, honestly. And I'd say he's earned it, you know, like, mm-hmm. and that's why his like, like with other directors that have big brands, like, like Tarantino is a big seller, but it's not like his movies are making like $500 million. He's, he's, he's making artsy director money, if that makes sense. And yeah. Same with Wes Anderson, whereas Nolan is making blockbuster money off of more artsy projects, which is on kind of unheard of right now. And then mm-hmm. no other, no other director is able to do that. Yeah. I can't think of any. Yeah, except for, no, I wasn't going to say Spielberg, but I, I feel like Spielberg's had a couple bombs lately, too. Yeah, I was going to say, Spielberg is still a big name, and he still, like, makes critical successes, but the Fablemans didn't do well at the box office. Yeah, and I wouldn't say Spielberg is a... I think he just has such a big, like, legacy that it's hard for him to become, like, I don't want to say it. It's like everyone knows who Spielberg is, but I like for the past 20 years, I've never been like heard the discussion. Like it's a Spielberg film. Like we have to see it. I think it might just be because he's, he's not, I don't know, hip anymore. Like maybe, maybe no one's what, what Spielberg was in the nineties, I guess. Maybe. So yeah, but yeah. And uh, I think this is definitely his riskiest movie yet in terms of, I mean, we talked about earlier, but the budget, the subject matter, the length of the movie and the way the movie's made, too. It's a it's a very intense. Biopic, it it might be slightly less of a risk than Tenet because Tenet is so weird and unapproachable. (laughs) And like this one is still weird, but it's like it's it is based on reality and it's actually not that difficult to follow. It's very interesting how this movie is structured, but like, Hmm. I feel like, I don't know if you're just really bad at following plots and stuff, you still get the point of this movie from beginning to end. You can still like follow it where Tenet, like, you know, after two viewings, you're still probably a little confused and it might be the point. It's hard to say. I, I think, okay, I think if I was a studio, I would be looking at Oppenheimer as much risk. Because when you think, when I was thinking Tenet, like before it came out, I was like, this feels like a spiritual successor to Inception, where it's an action spy thriller. Or like Inception was like a heist movie done with like some cool sci-fi concept, right? Mm-hmm. And then Tenet was going to be like a Bond movie, but with a cool sci-fi concept. And Inception was is probably one of the most well-known movies of all time, at least of yeah. our, of our generation. And it made a ton of money. So if, you, if, oh, if, if no one says I want to do the similar thing, but with another movie, I'd be like, give him 200 mil right there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think in the process of the movie, it came out a lot riskier than I think the studios were hoping for. Well, yeah. Whereas, I, 
I remember him kind of describing it as doing a Bond film from memory, which is really interesting to think about, but then you watch it and like, yeah. it's, it's a Bond film from memory. Yeah. <laughs> so like uh, as a studio guy, I would be, but I, I doubt I could see the studio. Like they like put 200 mil. They're like, do whatever you want. Like make a Bond movie. Those all make money. And then he comes back and he's like, the main character has no name. And he's from the past. He's from the future and the past. <laughs> and they're probably reading, watching the movie. And they're like, oh God, like this is not a Bond movie. What the hell? Why is he not? He doesn't even have a name. Whereas uh, Oppenheimer definitely has a name. So yeah. that way it was a little less risky, you know. In fact, it's the name of the movie, which is quite crazy. But yeah, well, I've I just, he's never done a, I guess Dunkirk was kind of biopicy. But, sort of but like sort of yeah but this was definitely a lot different than i'd say a, any movie he's done before mm -hmm. in terms and, of the the subject matter he chose yeah so generally what did you think of oppenheimer i guess like before like it's in terms of a summary it's the story of j robert oppenheimer who uh, is credited as the father of the atomic bomb. He led the Manhattan Project. And for the rest of the episode, spoilers for history, I guess. Like, w I don't think it matters to spoil this movie. Like, if people don't want spoilers for this movie, this is this is your spoiler warning. Because, like, I don't know if spoilers matter for this movie because it all happened. Yeah, it, it did happen. <laughs> so, uh, generally, yeah. what'd you think? I thought it was an interesting watch. I can't say I loved it, but it was a very unique experience that only Nolan could make. And uh, yeah, that's all I, that's, I guess that's all I could say for my first remarks. What about you? Uh, I can say I loved it. Uh, mm. I saw this twice. Mm. Um, I, I just went and saw it this morning. You already saw it twice. Oh, that was what you watched this morning. Yeah, it was. Oh my that's, God. Yeah. I can't uh, imagine watching that in the morning, honestly. Like, well, like the first time I watched it wasn't in IMAX. So I was like, I got to go okay. see it in IMAX. So I woke up early and went to the theater at 10 in the morning. It was packed uh, mm. and saw it again in IMAX. And yeah. I think this was like, I, it was, it was even better the second time. Uh, it wasn't that much different the second time, but like, I loved it. And I thought that even though it's three hours, which I think is his longest movie, like three hours on the dot it's so tight like to me it never feels like it's three hours in a bad way like it definitely i guess it feels its length but it's not like it feels appropriate at that length it yeah. um it never feels like any part is going on for too long um the performances in this are incredible it's like the main actors are career best performances. And um, I think that, I, I think the screenplay is maybe one of it's, it might be his best screenplay. It's so, it's so dense with stuff and yet it never feels bloated or anything like that. And all of the mm. themes tie together so well and are communicated so well. And like, I mean, every part of this movie is just incredible. Like this is, I, I don't, 
I, I haven't seen all of Christopher Nolan's movies, but like of the ones I've seen, this is probably the best one. Mm. And that's including, really the best you know, one. Wow. that's including big things like Inception and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, so well, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm very excited to see what you rate this movie at the end because I have a feeling I know where it's going. I mean, I, I, by saying that, because I've already rated Inception on this yeah. show, <laughs> I, I, say, like... I have to rate it higher than Inception. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was blown away by this. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. That's a bad term yeah, of phrase to use. That timing. Guess, uh... Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I. I really wish it clicked more for me. I just, I feel like it, it was just too Nolan, if that makes sense. It, because, and not in the style of the way, um, I, I feel like from what I've learned of Nolan, it's like he loves to, you know, merge these high concept ideas with these, you know, uh, blockbuster methods, right? And I was really happy to see because I really wanted to make see him make a grounded movie because I love, I mean I don't know if the Prestige is very grounded. I'd say it's kind of relatively grounded for his movies. For um, but Nolan, I also, yeah. I love Memento, and I I really wanted him to after Tenet to kind of go back to basics and make a much more grounded movie, and that's why Oppenheimer you know excited me a lot because I thought there was, you know, the concept sounded pretty grounded, and we get to see him just work with make a pretty straightforward movie, but with all the skills that he's developed over the years and kind of see how he improved from Memento, even though again, Memento is, is still kind of high concept. So it's not entirely fair to uh, compare, but I'd also say it is because this movie has kind of two storylines that like start on different ends and kind of converge uh, to the climax of the movie. Right. Yeah. So like structurally it's pretty similar. I just I think for me the pro the what made it work and what also made it not work is just I'd say the whole movie is kind of exposition technically. There's very few character moments and it's a lot because they cover such a big portion of Oppenheimer's life and it's such a big it's the movie's doing a lot. It just like each dialogue scene is so dense, has so much going on. You very you get very few scenes that allow you to breathe. There's 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 barely any establishing shots just because I really think he had to make it like once the movie starts going, it's just it's scene after scene after scene of dense dialogue, uh intense char- like intense character acting. Not many character scenes though, and it just goes. And I mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool because Again, this movie was never boring to me. There was a couple parts where I was kind of confused as to what was going on. Uh, like there was a part in the middle where they were talking about who the spy was. And I was kind of confused as to how it related to the other parts of the story that were going on at the time. Um, I think that was just because I missed some dialogue pieces and stuff. But And that's the thing too, is like if you miss something, some of the dialogue in this, you're kind of screwed because the movie's not going to slow down for you to think about it. Because it just mm-hmm. plows forward, you know, and I think that's that's why it's so interesting to me. I, I I think I'd say it's both a good thing and a bad thing because it's a good thing in that it makes this movie extremely effective and unique. Because I think that's something only Nolan could really do, which mm-hmm. is because he's the master at making exposition interesting. Like Inception was like two thirds exposition, 
and that was a very well done movie right yeah. um and this movie was kind of like i'd say this movie was like the second act of inception but like the whole movie in, in terms of the style of dialogue and the editing you know um and yeah it, it's that's why it's like a very unique experience um i'd say the pitfalls from that though are i i just didn't really feel a connection to the characters i i feel like i lacked a a I, an idea of the profound effects of what happened in the movie had in the future and um i'd, I'd say that's it i think i think those are the two things and that that's, those are two things that i i think well, the character work is usually something I have a problem with in Nolan movies anyways, where he doesn't he doesn't love to write character moments too much. You know, I think he's, he can do it very well. And I've seen him do it like one of one of the most memorable scenes from him is that Alfred scene with Bruce in The Dark Knight Rises where Alfred leaves Bruce. Right. And that's a heartbreaking scene, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's a beautiful scene. And I just feel like we haven't seen too many moments like that of his movies lately um and again it's i think it's just because he's he's aiming to make different movies that he wants to make and uh i can't i can't deny that and i think that's also what made oppenheimer such a unique beautiful experience too is because this this is this is a this is potentially the most nolan movie i've ever seen even though the concept is so normal you know Mm -hmm. and i thought yeah that's i guess that's all i can really say um i I think what kind of um yeah i think what kind of helps like because he doesn't you're right i don't think he writes too many explicit character moments for the main characters of um j robert oppenheimer and uh lewis strauss i think that but i think that those are helped so much by the fact that they're played by Killian Murphy and um, Robert Downey Jr. who are turning in like the best performances I've ever seen from them. Cause Killian Murphy is J Robert Oppenheimer. Like there's a few lines. Uh, Benny Safdie is in this movie as um, Edward mm-hmm. Teller, I think is his name. And anyway, mm-hmm. he, he says at one point that, he just can never understand his that J. Robert Oppenheimer's um, methods and intentions were confusing to him almost all the time, and that he would really prefer if someone was in charge who he understood better. And I think that sums up Oppenheimer in this movie really well because he is he's very confusing. He doesn't say what's on his mind very often, mm-hmm. and a lot of times he will do things in one scene that don't necessarily contradict an earlier scene, but also don't make a lot of obvious sense from what his character had done in the past. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I think that Killian Murphy uh, gets an awful lot uh, out of like facial expressions and physical acting in this role because his dialogue is... I mean, another thing, Florence Pugh at one point says, you wrote me pages of nothing. And like, it feels like a lot of Oppenheimer's dialogue in this is like pages of nothing. It's not really super substantial dialogue, but the way that Killian Murphy delivers it and like 
the shots of his face in between delivering dialogue are reveal so much about the character that you really can't put into words. Like, I feel like I'm kind it's, it's kind of a cop out for me to say that, but I feel like I got, I feel like at the end of the movie, I didn't necessarily understand who Oppenheimer was, but I feel like I kind of got the point of who the character was that Christopher Nolan was trying to give to us through much more, much more through Killian Murphy's physical acting than the actual dialogue that he was reading. Yeah, I, I'd agree with uh, the fact that like the, the movie was really well cast. I think all the actors did a great job with what they were given. Actually, I can't tell if I liked Robert Downey Jr. or not, honestly. I think, because obviously his character, well, we're not really doing spoilers. Like, the character was kind of fake. He was putting on an act, right? I'm not going to give too much away, but he was putting on a persona that kind of comes out more towards the end. And mm -hmm. I thought he stuck out more at the end to me. And uh, I think I think it's just, it's hard to tell. Because I it's also, I just see him so he's so recognizable to me as, as himself, as Iron Man, that it's going to be tough for me to like get away from that. So I think that might be part of it too, but you're right. Like I, I the, it was all cast very well. The, the fact that they were able to get as much interest in these characters with as little screen time as some of them got was great to me. Like, I think Emily Blunt did an amazing job considering, I think she kind of got, I don't want to say shafted in the movie, but her character really had nothing to do. I thought that was unfortunate. I mean, um, a relatively common complaint about Christopher Nolan is that he's not great at writing female characters. Yeah. And while <laughs> I while I think the female characters in this movie were pretty good for a Christopher Nolan movie, there's two of them. So there like there's two of them in an ensemble cast of like a dozen men. Yeah. Which, you know, I guess the female perspective isn't really in this movie and I don't know if that, like, I don't know if that's intentionally, but it's not intentionally by design to leave women out of the movie. It's just that Nolan didn't write women into his movie, <laughs> but like, so you it know, was <laughs> it's, it's like negative intentional like versus positive intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think his wife technically, I mean, I, I, I haven't read the book that, nolan based the screenplay on so i can't be sure to say like oh his wife didn't have a huge effect on you know the actual process of making the bomb or his life but it's just like because i think it was trying to be a movie about the creation of the atomic bomb but also a document or a movie about oppenheimer's life and mm -hmm. it was kind of doing a tough time of telling both because like I, I think what's the easiest movie for me to compare this to is the social network. <laughs> I just love the social network. And because I, I think they're 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 both movies about, you know, two two very smart individuals that create these products that in the third act end up really making them regret their lives, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think with the social network, it works so well because not only are we able to connect with Mark Zuckerberg, but that sounds so weird to say, <laughs> but we're able to connect with Mark Zuckerberg, the character, but we're also able to, I think that helps the after effects 
pull, uh, play out emotionally more, you know, because we were, we really got to see him interact with these other people. I think with this movie, it's like so much is happening and so much of this story is told that when Oppenheimer is kind of betrayed at the end by these people, it's, I never felt like too sad about it or a sense of betrayal in any way, because I just never saw a lot of these moments where these characters were actually able to connect, you know, like there's that one guy at the start that he meets at a lecture. No, they meet on a train, but I think they, his friend sees him at a lecture and then they start talking on the train. Um, I don't know who the characters or the guy's name. Uh, Robbie. That's his last Robbie. Name. Okay. Uh, but like there was that one scene on the train that I remember. And then the next scene I see him in is like an hour later and they're at the, what's what's it called the camp where the atomic bombs los alamos and there's like an hour of a break but it feels like in that time it's expected for us to believe that they're like almost best friends right like he's a very Mm -hmm. close confidant of oppenheimer but i i don't know if i missed a scene or i just can't remember any scenes where we actually see that relationship grow and it's kind of the same thing you know later like with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, there was surprisingly few moments where him and Oppenheimer actually interact, which I think the movie kind of needed more of because as we see later, a a very big part of the third act is the fact that they have some kind of uh, rivalry, if that makes sense. I mean, a little bit, although Oppenheimer doesn't really, I mean, he clearly knows about and understands what's up with Strauss, uh, who's... That's Robert Downey Jr.'s character. But like, he doesn't really seem that interested in him. Like it's it's only a rivalry from one side. It kind of feels Yeah, well, I was trying to make, keep it. I agree with you. I was trying to keep it ambiguous. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I just, I'm trying to make sure I don't say too much, but it probably shouldn't matter anyways. But yeah, so I, but I think that technically that relationship was very important to the plot of the movie. But we don't see much of that relationship actually play out. We just know what happened from the characters talking about it through exposition uh, afterwards, if that makes sense. And it's kind of the same thing with when we kind of see Edward Teller betray Oppenheimer slightly at the end. Um, but I never really felt a huge connection between them either. Uh same thing with Matt Damon's character. I thought Matt Damon played his character very well, but I never saw him and Oppenheimer really connect or even like fight that much. They were just, they were working together and they were talking about the process of creating Los Alamos, but there was never a scene where they kind of bonded as two people mm-hmm. and got to know each other. Right. So those betrayals in the third act didn't really hit as much to me. And for the third act, like everything after the bomb, I was kind of kept wondering like, why does this, matter that much because it felt like the movie was mostly building towards the creation of the bomb um and then the third act was kind of like why oppenheimer why we should feel for oppenheimer and why and the the story of the aftermath of his life from the bomb but i just feel like there wasn't too much of a foundation set for oppenheimer's life itself to really feel the after effects of his life collapsing, if that makes sense. Like, I don't really understand why that security, like he got his, from what I can tell, he got a security clearance revoked in that mm-hmm. meeting. But I'm just like, I don't understand why that matters because to me, 
it's like he didn't want to work with the government anyways. So I don't see how that's a huge loss for him. Other than like for his like personally that he feels kind of rejected by the government. Which I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Which again, uh, isn't a, isn't a, I think, I don't think that, that should, just because it doesn't mean much to me, doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that the, it shouldn't hit in the movie. I think that move, moment could have hit more like the security clearance being revoked. If we were more connected with Oppenheimer's character and we saw more of a reason for why he would be emotional about that. And yeah, I think like, um, I think I might have to be a little less ambiguous about Robert Downey Jr.'s character than okay, you were let's trying just to go be, into so it. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. But like, I think one thing that's um, everything you're pointing out, I found that I don't know. I don't know if we're really supposed to connect that much with Oppenheimer as a character. And like, I don't know that much, but you're right. We don't really, we don't get a lot of, um, because Oppenheimer is so because the script doesn't really give him very many opportunities to talk about what he's feeling and what he's thinking and all of these things, we don't get that personal connection with him. And I think that um, a lot of the other characters don't as well. So uh, the way the story is told in two different sides, there's sort of Oppenheimer's life told chronologically more or less in, uh, in color because that's Oppenheimer telling his story and then there's a black and white section that's mostly Robert Downey Jr. telling things. And from the Robert Downey Jr. side, so the way I heard Nolan describe this uh, in an interview was that the black and white side is objective and the, and the color side is subjective, which mm. I guess makes some sense in that the color, the color part is subjective from Oppenheimer's point of view. And in relation to Oppenheimer the black and white part is not subjective because it's not subjective from Oppenheimer, but the black and white part is all told by uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Louis Strauss, who is much more open with his thoughts and feelings and is a much more personal character. Like when he talks about someone, he talks about how that person related to him. He -hmm. talks about his relationship with Oppenheimer, his frustrations or like, collaborations with Oppenheimer the only times he talks about Einstein who ends up being a very important uh auxiliary character he talks about his relationship with Einstein and what that relationship and its existence or non-existence means for him Louis Strauss Mm -hmm. and so um the I think Oppenheimer himself is a character that sort of remains mysterious in that we don't really ever get the chance to connect with him but Mm -hmm. everyone else around him is very personal characters and uh, I've lost my train of thought slightly I think what that the effect of that is that this movie really isn't so much about it's not really trying I think to get us to empathize too much with Oppenheimer because I don't think it cares whether we empathize with Oppenheimer. I think that there's there's a really important line in this movie, and it's also what the book this movie is based on is called, where Kenneth Branagh calls him an American Prometheus. And I think that's 
that's like the key moment of this movie because what he's saying is once you've released this atomic bomb into the world, it's going to get taken out of your hands and you are going to have no control over it anymore, which is kind of what that entire third act is about because Oppenheimer losing his security clearance is him losing the last bit of influence he had over the over the trajectory of atomic energy in the United States, which he didn't have very much influence over, but at the very least he could advise. And after that point, you know, whatever the government decides to do with this thing that can literally end the world, if uh, that could not literally end hands. the world, it's not in his hands. Yeah. It's only in the hands of like, it's basically in God's hands now. Like yeah. the, the U S government will either, get really lucky or abuse the hell out of it. And probably in one way or another, the world is ultimately going to be destroyed. Probably. Yeah. Well, I think maybe it would have worked better for me if I, <laughs> I didn't know the world was going to be, at least it's, it's okay so far. Like, like that last, there's the last, the last line where he's like, like, I think we destroyed, I think we potentially destroyed the world. And it's like, it's, I guess it's possible, but from what I like, from what I've seen, the after effects of the atomic bomb is that it's actually, like, it's actually prevented the the possibility of a large scale war, at least for the past like you know fifty sixty years. You know, um, again, like I, I don't want to I don't want to jinx it and be like it's never gonna happen. It could, but like overall. Cause I, I don't know this, maybe this is just a personal thing, but like I was watching a lot of uh, this history YouTube channel and I realized there was like, it was like a massive war every 20 years and every 20, 30 years, like it was, it was mm-hmm. really bad. Right. Um, and tons of people were sent, were sent to die in these pointless wars and it still happens, but to a much lesser extent, because two, at this point, two superpowers cannot collide anymore. It's impossible unless the world ends essentially right Mm -hmm. and like it's like it was trying to play the movie as like a real downer at the end but but so how do i say this the the way i think the way the movie frames it is that the it's a lot more chilling if you take into the fact that it's not so much the story of oppenheimer but it's a story of it's like the origin story of how the world could potentially end that makes yeah. sense. I think in that case, the movie does work very well because we don't connect with Oppenheimer, but we are very connected with the fact that we are tracking the creation of this bomb because he's the father of the atomic bomb. That's kind of like what the movie's about, essentially, is that we see mm-hmm. how it was created and we see what it was used for, sort of, and we see what it could potentially be used for in the future. And um, the movie's meant to leave you on this, like, what could happen in the future. But for me, it's like we're already 67 years in the future and it's only done good things from what I can tell. Again, well, I don't want to jinx. Well, other than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I, I would not say that, that the atomic bomb has been a net positive for humanity. Really? Oh, that okay. Well, actually, that's like a... Do you want to talk about that now or is that... I really don't. Okay, never mind. I think I'm it sorry. Might it's all good. I, I, I wish that I felt confident enough in my political opinions to make this a political podcast, but I definitely That's do fair. not. Okay. Okay. No, I, I, I was just curious because, uh, I, I didn't want to, I, I wouldn't turn it into a beta or anything, but, um, 
that that might be why you connected with the movie more too then um because for me like when the movie ended i didn't feel very chilled about it because i think like oh sorry go ahead oh i was i was just gonna say that because of what i said earlier that i've in my opinion we've only seen a net positive gain uh from it but obviously there is a huge risk yeah and i i remembered what i was gonna say earlier i think that like um with every character outside of oppenheimer like a big part of what I liked about this is Oppenheimer and the physicists are relatively impersonal. Oppenheimer especially, but the rest of his physicists as well. They're like thinking of this, they th- they're thinking of the thing they're working on. Uh, most of them are, for the most part, thinking of the thing they're working on in very impersonal, abstract terms. Because mm-hmm. they kind of have to. Like as soon as it becomes, as soon as any part of it becomes real, they kind of have to make it as as not real as they can. And like a big part of this, like a big controversy actually in this movie is that the effects of the atomic bomb after it was dropped are never shown. Mm. And uh, that's clearly intentional uh, mm. in this movie. And while I think there's definitely an argument to be made as to showing those kind of effects in this movie. I think the better argument to be made is whether or not the atomic bomb should have been dropped in the first place, which mm. uh, is a much bigger argument than that. And in my opinion, the answer is absolutely not. But mm. like, the thing is, when these when the characters hear about the bomb dropping and they have to deal with sort of the consequences of their actions they have to abstract it very far. And like Oppenheimer can never, eventually he does get to see pictures, I guess, because they bring a person in with a PowerPoint or a slideshow. Mm -hmm. Um, But like when he's heard this and he's having to imagine it, that entire scene, that entire scene is a horror scene because he's having to imagine what happened and make it as personal as he can to him. Mm -hmm. But he's never seen it. He only has heard about it. And, like, the only thing he's seen, you know, he can't really turn... He doesn't He doesn't have the language to turn it personal mm-hmm. the way that he would need to in order to, like... He says at one point, Oppenheimer says at one point, as theor, no, we're theoreticians, what we think about horrifies us, but what they see... But they won't be horrified until they see it. And so that one scene where we're sort of seeing him imagining the effects is him like having to, that's what he thinks about that horrifies him. Mm -hmm. But like his imagination can never actually be the truth because he hasn't seen, he hasn't seen the truth. And so there's this thing that's so much bigger than him that he can think about and that he knows that like this big thing can't he can't really trust anyone else with it but everyone around him that's seeing the world in such personal terms like Louis Strauss is you know when Louis Strauss talks about uh, there's a point at this where they're talking about a bigger bomb like the helium bomb or not helium the hydrogen bomb yeah and when Louis Strauss thinks about that he thinks about it as this is another step towards you know, if we have the big bomb, then no one will mess with us because we'll throw a big bomb at them and end the world. And Mm -hmm. like, 
he's not thinking of that in terms of and will end the world. He's thinking of that in terms of no one will mess with us, which is the smaller part of that thought. But since everything is so personal for him and he cares who messes with him, mm-hmm. like that's the part that he can relate to where mm-hmm. Oppenheimer being a much more abstractly minded person and actually a more abstract character in this, like that's not a part that he, that that even matters to him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I, I think it uh, definitely adds, oh, I, I, that, that part of the story is definitely the most intriguing in terms of character work. Uh, I guess like, yeah, the third act because um yeah, no, I, I think the cycle, because the, the whole movie is, is just focused on the creation of the bomb. Mm-hmm. And then they build it and they're like, wait, like, why did we do this? I, I personally think it was kind of, it's probably insensitive. I thought it was kind of funny just because like, it doesn't make, it doesn't make too much sense to me. Like the military asks you to build a bomb and then you build it and then you're like, wait, you're going to use the bomb? Like, I, I understand the character work there. It, it makes sense. I think. And like, if you kind of look at it from an outsider's perspective, for me, outside of the movie, it does seem kind of odd that it's like when Henry Ford made the car and he's like, wait, people want to use this thing? Um, I, I I see the idea of, I think he was so obsessed with the possibility, kind of like a Jurassic Park, the theme of like, so obsessed with the idea of, could you do it? He didn't ask whether he should do it. And I think about the effects of him getting in, there's a line where they talk about Oppenheimer hasn't really been a science, a physicist for years. He's become a politician and you see, you kind of see the process of a a scientist getting involved in politics and in some ways how inexperienced and out of his depth he was because, you know, once, once the bomb was done, he really, he gave, he gave his only selling point to the government, you know, and he really had nothing Mm -hmm. else other than that. Right. Um, And that scene with there, I don't know if Gary Oldman was actually was was he was he listed in the credits at all like in the I think so at the I definitely knew about Gary Oldman going into this movie I heard he had a scene yeah but he wasn't part of like the marketing campaign I mean there were so many people in this movie that I don't blame them but there's that scene with Truman (laughs) where he's just Oppenheimer enters there and they just treat him like shit like it was it was really it was actually a really painful scene to watch because Oppenheimer is kind of sitting there and he's just like uh like he's really worried about the future of like the Russians getting their hands on the technology and using it and starting an arms race which did happen and Truman's just <laughs> it was actually he leaves the office and Truman's like don't let that little pussy back in here <laughs> so like it was like something insanely rude um but I also read a something that really changed my opinion on that scene too where it's like Oppenheimer as we see in the whole movie has a huge ego and he makes a lot of things about him and what that scene kind of demonstrated from Truman is that it's like Oppenheimer was a very small well not very small part but he was a small part of a larger system that created that bomb Mm -hmm. and he was credited as the father of the atomic bomb but in the end, it's like he, he was blaming he he believed that he himself solely was uh you know the the man behind the the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and the solely responsible for the creation of the arms race that would exist afterwards, right? 
And I could see mm -hmm. why psychologically he would believe that. But in the end, it's like, it's, it's not, it wasn't about, it was never about Oppenheimer. It, it, it was about in the end, like the, the government's, it, the government, it was the government's goal to, to end world war two. Right. And in the end, Truman was the one that dropped the bombs and a lot of the guilt and blame and uh, should also go to him as well. And mm -hmm. I think Truman was kind of highlighting that where he's just like, like, it's not all about, he was basically kind of saying in that scene, like, it's not all about you. Um, this, this was a very coordinated effort on all sorts of fronts, but uh, obviously, you know, I can see why Oppenheimer would feel those, those feelings too. And I kind of wish they tackled that more, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. He's, he's actually not, in the third act too much because it kind of shifts focus from Oppenheimer to Louis Strauss's character more and kind of it was it was more about the downfall of Oppenheimer rather than we see Oppenheimer going through that downfall personally if that makes sense mm -hmm. so uh yeah I, I thought that I think I actually would have loved if the movie a lot of the movie was more about that downfall rather than most of it ended up being the creation of the bomb because I think the creation of the bomb was a pretty straightforward process, but the emotional complexity of the after effects of the bomb to me was a lot more interesting in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because even in that one scene, it's well, not even in, like that scene, all of the biggest the biggest character moments for Oppenheimer are all after the bomb. There's, the speech that he has to give that's like an actual horror scene. Mm -hmm. There's the scene with uh, Truman. And then, um, oh, there's one other thing. I guess like his big scenes with Einstein afterwards too. Mm -hmm. a, um, a friend of mine pointed out afterwards that that scene with Truman really emphasize, it really drives home the like difference between Oppenheimer and the, polit the, the actual politicians in the movie. And I think it really gets to the heart of what I've been saying about him versus Strauss as well, because there's one scene or there's one line that he says where Truman goes, do you know when the Soviets will have the bomb? And it sounds like an actual question the first time he says it. Mm -hmm. And Oppenheimer says, well, they've, they're going to probably put all of their effort into it. And Truman cuts him off and he goes, never, they're mm -hmm. never going to have the bomb. Yeah. They'll never have it. And yeah. like, it doesn't matter whether he believes that or not. Like, first off, he's, you know, that's what he will always say because right. as president, he's never going to let the Soviets have the bomb, whether or not that's up to him. Mm -hmm. And two, like, because he's full of himself too. Um, yeah. And then like, as Oppenheimer's like, well, okay, well, in that case, you know, let's give Los Alamos back to the people that were there before. Yes. Yeah. And his aide goes, well, hold on. If you say the Russians might have it soon, we should probably keep it up and running, right? And then yeah. kicks him out of the and then kicks him out of the room. <laughs> yeah. I think well, it's I, like, I, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I I would say that yeah, the idea that Truman or the government basically it was like Oppenheimer was really just impassioned about the science behind it. Um. And the government just saw a tool that they could use to end the war and gain more power. And that's, that's what kind of ended up happening. You know, they, they never, it's like, there's that one scene where they're discussing targets for the atomic bomb 
And the one guy's like, I don't want to bomb Kyoto. Well, he first he says because of its historical significance, but then he also says because me and my wife like the honeymoon there. And it's like insane to me. I don't know if that actually happened, but it's, yes, it's that did. absolutely that's almost like, an exact quote. Okay. So like that's insanely depressing slash uh like anxiety inducing that I mean that the best word a I bunch of people were killed instead of other people. Yeah, ghoulish. It's it's like a very dark humor moment, but it's also like like yeah, very ghoulish. The fact that some people were chosen to die instead of others just because one guy liked to vacation, wanted the vacation in that city in the future. And that, that was really, that's a very dark moment. And mm-hmm. that landed very well because it's just like the idea that they don't respect the power that they created uh, is kind of coming to life, you know? And it, I guess that does, that does have an effect because at the start you know, for the first two hours, we see a bunch of people who care very much about the science behind it and respect the power of the atomic bomb, put so much work into it just to see it go into people that don't care about it. Well, and it's like, I mean, this is clearly a theme that I didn't identify earlier, but certainly am now. Like, the reason he doesn't want to bomb Kyoto is for personal reasons, right? It's Mm -hmm. dear to him. He knows that place. Mm -hmm. And like, a lot of this movie, well, the entirety of this movie is the effects of things, the effects of the things you're doing on places that you're not connected with. And for other people, like, that doesn't matter. Louis Strauss doesn't care about anything that doesn't relate to him. Uh, that guy in the, the that, that military general in that meeting didn't care about any of the cities except the one that was personal to him. Mm. Truman only cared about the bomb insofar as it was going to help his career. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. any Oppenheimer is Oppenheimer and the physicists are the ones that are able to, well, they're the ones that have to think about these <clears throat> things that to them are very abstract like consequences on consequences that affect people that aren't them. And, Mm. you know, whether or not that certain physicists do a better job of, you know, considering that than others, but Mm. they're the ones that are left to, that that they're the only ones that actually have to think about that stuff in those terms. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big, that's clearly a big theme of this movie that I did not identify earlier. Mm, yeah yeah i i think the only i like i wish it landed more but i think it's just i I think that initial premise though of just like like you were creating a bomb like to me it just it doesn't land as hard like because it's like these are some of the smartest men of all time but it's also like you had to kind of i think it's like you had to have kind of known from the back of your head that what you were doing could lead to very drastic consequences, but they were so focused on the idea of could they do it? Uh, and I think also Oppenheimer was very emotionally connected to it because he was very scared of the Germans, the Nazis at the time. And that, that like at first that was who the bomb was intended to be used on was um, what was the Nazis because uh, you know, he, he was Jewish and he was, obviously very grief stricken by the fact that a lot of his people were dying during world war two. 
So it's I, one I, of the few things that actually can be personal to him in this movie. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, and so that makes a lot of sense for why he wanted to create the bomb in the first place. Um, I think the idea that it was used on a popular on the Japanese, which I don't think he personally felt much issue with. Like I don't know how I I feel about. Because it, it just, I, I kind of wish maybe the movie delved into that more too, but I mean, it was so long, it doesn't really matter. I don't think they had space for it. But like, I, I wonder like if it was used on a German population, would he have felt more justified with it? Because it's kind of like what you said with the guy that he chose not to bomb Kyoto because he had a personal connection to it. Would he, would Oppenheimer felt more okay with bombing the Nazis because he personally felt that he was saving the the Jewish people from from genocide, you know, where it's like at the same time, the Japanese were also I, I wouldn't say they were causing the genocide of a specific race of people, but they were also simultaneously killing and torturing and raping vast amounts of Asia. And um, so could you say that for Oppenheimer, it didn't once the incident didn't become personal for him anymore. Uh he felt the need to control the bomb, if that makes sense. Like, I wonder, I wonder if it would have panned differently for him if he fe he felt more justified in terms of defending his his own his own people. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. But again, the movie, I don't know how important that is, and also the movie was already very long, so <laughs> that's like a whole other topic that the movie would have to tackle. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. like ultimately the situation you're describing didn't happen. So like mm -hmm. it kind of, it's impossible, you know, know, it's, it's, it's yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, I wrote down here acting and themes mm -hmm. and I think we talked about acting and themes. Anything else you wanted to say about did. this movie? Um, I, I'd say there was a, a couple scenes I want to highlight, like the like the 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 PTSD, and I wouldn't say PTSD scene, but like the scene where he's figuring out how much pain he actually caused Oppenheimer during his speech was was really really well shot mm -hmm. and well done, and I'm really happy they didn't actually show Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, because I think I, I'm not a huge fan of the depression porn. I think that that was a very good opportunity for it. I don't think it would have played well with the movie because it's like, we, we know what happened. I think it's just kind of like adding a, a certain, it would have been too much in my And opinion. I also would point to several excellent Japanese movies that handled that conflict from the other side. Yeah. Specifically, since I'm saying I'll point to them, Barefoot Gen and... While it's not about the atomic bomb, um, Grave of the Fireflies are mm. excellent movies that talk about that conflict from the other side. And there's so many more. It's at one point Oppenheimer mentions the cultural impact of the bomb, whether or not it would be whether or not it would cause more death than just firebombing a city. Uh, it would be culturally devastating to the population and uh he wasn't wrong 
so yeah, I, I think the subtlety played very well and that that was smart by Nolan. I I never mind. I, I'm not gonna say that. But the other other scene I wanted to point out was the the scene where we he's talking about the affair with Florence Pugh's character. I can't remember her name. Gene Tackbach. Gene Tackbach. And it's there he's talking about it in the conference room and you see a naked scene of him and gene basically embracing in front of this 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 board uh in front of the boardroom and his his wife is watching from the back and that was such a cool visual storytelling moment um Mm -hmm. just because not only like obviously a lot of the movie was was talking about how he was having an affair but that move that scene was just so effective in terms of capturing the feelings of what his wife was feeling probably at the time and how she he probably looked to her um in her own mind because you know how how um i don't want to i feel like embarrassing isn't the right word but it's like how embarrassing is it to be for your husband to be talking about your affair in front of many people and having to discuss that, you know, he, he did have feelings for another woman um, in front of your wife, you know, and. And right after that scene, she kind of chastises him for it and mm-hmm. he doesn't understand because they've already <laughs> talked about this. Mm-hmm. But like, not only was she being dragged through it again, but like now before it was private, they'd talked about it. They dealt with it. Now it's on the record. Like people mm-hmm. are going to read about this in the future. And clearly they did because there's now a movie about it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the imagery in that scene was, that, that's genuinely like probably one of the coolest storytelling um, effects I've seen like in, in a long time. That was very, very well done. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's 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 just it's a very it's a very interesting movie and I wouldn't I I wouldn't trade this for a, a more regularly told story of Oppenheimer. I think this is definitely one of the most uniquely told biopic movies I've ever seen, and I I love it just from that angle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think but, yeah. Um, the last thing I want to say because I don't know that I have too much more to say about it, but like. The way this movie is structured is very much as a conversation between people who are at least five years apart. Mm-hmm. Like this is a con like Lewis Strauss is telling his side of the story while Oppenheimer is telling his side of the story. And they're telling those stories in very different ways, but they're the way it's framed is kind of as a conversation where what they're talking about at any given time is the same thing. And sometimes they'll just build on each other directly And I think Mm -hmm. that in order to tell that that way, uh, the editor, whose name I will find now, editor Jennifer Lane and composer Ludwig Göransson are incredible in this movie. Like this movie could not work as well as it does with any less of an editor. And similarly, like... Mm. One of, probably one of my favorite like longer sequences in this movie, definitely my favorite longer sequence in this movie is the scene where they're talking about there may be a spy at Lo- at Los Alamos and they sort of dive into finding the spy at Los Alamos. And the way that that's um, 
that's probably like 20 minutes of screen time and it's all but it moves so quickly due to the score that's underneath it and the editing between uh Louis Strauss telling his version in the in, in the latest part of the movie Oppenheimer telling his version just five years before that and then flashbacks to two completely different time periods so all so overall it's four different time periods working together in conversation and it never feels confusing to me at least mm-hmm. uh, because of the editing and the way that it's underpinned with all with the music mm-hmm. I think it's such a well done sequence in a movie that already has like so many well done sequences in it yeah the the editing is insanely tight and i think the fact that i was able to understand as much as i did is just a testament to it for sure Mm -hmm. it's yeah jennifer lane very well done and look i i personally wasn't a huge fan of garant i just i can't remember much from it if i'm be honest i i didn't particularly find a memorable intent too so i i'm kind of I think it's like, I, I just loved Hans Zimmer and Nolan so much. Like all their scores to me are extremely well done and memorable. And to me, I I wouldn't say the score was bad in this. I just, there weren't many memorable moments to me that really struck out to me, if that makes sense. And I think that was the point, but also like, it, it I, I can't be like, this score was amazing. It was like, it served its purpose, I'd say. I think it served its purpose exceedingly well. Like I think that the I think that during the movie I noticed the score as much as I needed to and I felt that the score helped to move the movie along at the pace that it needed to go. Like the score a lot of times felt like a narrator when there was none. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm probably not going to listen to this score outside of this movie too much like on my own because I think it's a score that works very well within the movie, but I don't think that it's necessarily a score that works outside of the movie. Mm-hmm. Where, good. you know, the Inception yeah. score from Hans Zimmer is, you can just listen to that. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. So that's an hour and a half about Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. I guess 20, 25 of that was technically Barb, Barbenheimer. True, true. But yeah. I mean, I guess join us again in 10 minutes for uh, us to talk about Barbie. Yeah, go go take a break, uh, grab something, and then come back and listen to the next episode. It's the intermission. <laughs> uh, what's our last word, Pierre? Or I guess not actually the last word, like the middle word. Bacon. <laughs>